All right, for those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Drew. I am one of the staff members here at the table. And tonight I get the opportunity to dive into Exodus 2 with you. I'm excited to get to do that. Uh, but before I do, I want to tell you about my kids. My wife, Amy, and I, we've got three kids. Uh, Ella, who is 14, and Hudson, who is 12, and Hadley, who is 10. Uh, some of you guys know them. Sometimes they're up here running around, or if anybody works in like Elevate, Kids Church at, at Sunnybrook on Sunday mornings or Wednesday night, you probably know my daughter, Hadley. Uh, so anyway, you, you may know them. Uh, parenting uh, has been one of the uh, biggest adventures that we have had in, in our kind of life. I'll say this, life-shaping adventures that we have had uh, in our life. There are few things that have been harder for us than parenting, more difficult and often we feel like we're messing it up. Um, few things have also been uh, truthfully as fun as parenting. They, they make things lively and they keep things a lot of fun. And there are few things that have taught us like parenting has taught us. Uh, sometimes learning things about ourselves as we struggle through and fail. And, and sometimes though, sometimes actually like learning things from them. Uh, these, these little profound things will come out of their mouths sometimes. And, and, and watching the things they do, sometimes it's amazing the way you can learn from them. Uh, a few years ago, we were coming back from a family vacation. Uh, and uh, we actually we had gone to Disney World. So we took our kids to Disney World for the first and probably last time. Uh, because Disney World is crazy expensive and stressful and all of those things. But we were also riding on an airplane for the first time. And they were, I think it was like... Uh, 10 and 9 and 6. In fact, I think I've got a picture of them. Let's see. There we go. Okay. So uh, it's a little small for those of you in the back. I don't know if you can see. But this was them at 10 and 9 and 6. I just wanted you to be able to kind of picture them a little bit. Hudson there in the middle. Hadley uh, on the left. And Hudson and Hadley, as it turns out, ended up in these seats that were right behind my wife, Amy. And so she's sitting there and she can kind of hear them talking in this conversation that's happening between them, which is always kind of fun. You never know what's going to come out of their mouths, what they might say. And so she's listening in. And I don't know if it's because we had been traveling and going to like a brand new place or, or if it's because we were like flying in an airplane for the first time or what it was. But it had Hadley thinking like big thoughts about God. And so Hadley turns to her brother Hudson there, and in the middle, and Amy can hear her say to him, God is everywhere, isn't he? And Hudson's like, yeah, he's, he's everywhere. And she's like, but like, he's, he's, we can't see him because he's invisible, right? And Hudson goes, yeah, that's true. And, and she goes, but he can see us, can't he? And Hudson's like, yeah. And it's this really beautiful moment. And, and, Amy's just sitting there listening as, as our daughter is pondering these big things about God in her little mind and thinking through all these cool truths and her heart is kind of filling up, just welling up as she's listening to this. And then after a couple seconds, she hears Hadley kind of ponder this truth and then she just goes, that's creepy. <laughs> uh, and, and Amy thought, that wasn't quite where I was hoping that was going, but uh, she said, yeah, that's creepy. And this is her reasoning, because you don't know what he's doing. 
right? He's everywhere, and you can't see him, and you don't know what he's doing. And, and Amy actually looked back, and she could see Hadley, like, looking from left to right, almost like, you know, like they're watching us right now. He's watching, like, you don't know what he's doing. And, and it was this crazy, like, moment where uh, everything that she thought the direction this was going so beautiful and sweet kind of took a harsh turn and went a completely different direction. But I don't think Hadley's super far off with that statement. Creepy is not the word I would use. Uh, mysterious is the word I might use. Frustrating is the word I might use. This idea that we know God is everywhere, but we don't always know what he's doing. I think if you were to try to sum up the first two chapters of the book of Exodus, that might be a great little summary. At least at first glance, we know, we know God's there, but we don't know exactly what he's doing. Alec opened up the book for us last week, and uh, we drove into Exodus 1 together, which has this really kind of mixed bag of good news, bad news, as it opens up. The good news centers around this idea that in the book of Genesis, right before, God took these people, Abraham, and said, out of you and your descendants, I'm going to make a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And then you walk all the way through, and it takes forever in Genesis before he has any kids. Finally, he has a kid, and that kid has a kid who, who, who then has 12 kids. And, and by the time you get to Genesis, uh, things are happening. There's like 70 in the family, but 70 does not make a nation. 70 is not a lot of people. And you leave on this kind of cliffhanger wondering, so what's going to happen? And then we open up to the book of Exodus, and you get to read these words uh, from the very beginning, Exodus 1 Verse 7 says this, But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous, so that the land was filled with them. And the land that they're in at this time is Egypt. And so you get this little bit of good news. Oh, the promise that God made to Aram. All the way back in Genesis 12, we open up the book of Exodus and see it's starting to happen. Like they're beginning to multiply. They're beginning to become this large nation. And so that's the good. But the bad news is that they are, as I said, in Egypt. And they're not there as free people, at least not for long. Because Pharaoh, as they begin to grow, starts to fear them. And he starts to make plans to try to shut this down, to try and like quelch whatever is happening among them. And so the first thing he does is he enslaves them and puts them to work building cities and monuments in the land of Egypt. And when that begins to not work, he puts a policy in place that every newborn boy is supposed to be killed on sight the moment they are born. And so he tells the midwives this is what they're supposed to do. We learned last week that they, these midwives feared God and they refused to do that. And so that plan doesn't quite work. And so he instills a new one. And this time he deputizes every Egyptian in the land. You see a Hebrew baby boy, you grab him and you throw him into the river the mighty Nile River that runs right through the land of Egypt. Every Hebrew baby boy ends up in there. And so every Egyptian is deputized to do these things. And so they're enslaved. And now they're having their children uh, hunted down. And he's doing everything he can to stamp them out. And so things look like they could not get worse for the Israelite people in this moment. But they will get worse. And the truth of the matter is it will be a long time before they get better. And yet, 
we are meant to hold to this idea that we saw at the beginning, verse 7, remember this, remember when it's hard, remember when it looks like things aren't going well, that the Israelites are multiplying. Something is starting to happen. The promise seems to be taking root, and that's what leads us into chapter 2. You can read along with me in your Bible or on the screen. Here's what we read. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman, and the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. So in the midst of this genocidal policy, this trying to kill off every baby boy, there's this couple from the tribe of Levi, and that will be significant later. We won't worry about it now, but they have a baby boy. And what would normally be wonderful news has to be a nightmare the moment that he's born and and comes out, and they know from the moment he's born that he's doomed to die. They want to do everything they can to take care of him and protect him. And you see this really weird statement there in verse uh, 2. It says, when Moses' mom, when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. That's a weird phrase there. When she saw that he was beautiful or handsome, she hid him for three months. First of all, it just kind of sounds weird, beautiful, but also it almost like sounds like so so if he was ugly, would she not have hit him? Was like, is, is that his only hope? Is that he, he's he's handsome boy, so we'll, we'll protect this one? What, what, what's going on there? Uh, when you see a, a word or a phrase that just kind of sticks out and seems odd, it's worth asking sometimes, why is that there? The biblical writers actually love to do this thing, if you look through literature. They love to use patterns and themes to hint at certain ideas in their stories. And so they'll take a word or a phrase that got used a long time ago in another book or earlier in the book, and they'll play it out. And the hope is that their Hebrew listeners, those who know the language, will catch on and see what's happening. The word that is translated beautiful here is actually normally not translated as that. Most of the time it's just translated good. But that doesn't really sound quite right either, right? When they saw that he was good, they decided to hide him. What's actually going on, I think, actually, is this phrase that is, that's used here is one that a Hebrew listener would know. Saw that it was good. Saw that he was good. This is actually an identical phrase that gets used repeatedly in Genesis 1. Every time God creates something, God made the light and God saw that it was good. God created the plants and he created the fish and he saw that it was good. And he created the stars and he saw that it was good. And she had this baby boy and saw that he was good. And the hint that seems to be dropped here is that um, something new is about to start. That God is about to bring creation out of the darkness and the wickedness and the chaos that exists in this moment. And so pay attention because the birth of this boy is about to be the birth of a brand new people. Or he's going to represent the birth of a brand new people. And so people kind of catch that and and they hide him for a little while. But at some point it becomes impossible. He's too old. He's too big. And so they've got nothing left to do. They've got no options. And they just put him in this papyrus basket that they've covered with pitch so it can float. And they stick it in the river and they just say a prayer and hope against hope that maybe somehow, some way he won't die. And then we read in verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. 
She saw the basket among the reeds, and her slave girl took it, opened it, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, This is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So they put him in a river with nothing but this hope and a prayer, knowing that there's basically no chance that he's going to make it. And then somehow he winds up floating straight into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. The very Pharaoh who has condemned this boy to die, but instead of her following her father's policy, the text says that she has pity, pity on him, compassion, and she takes him in. Moses' sister, Miriam, we'll find out her name is later, she's watching this from a distance, and she takes advantage of the opportunity. She walks up to, Moses, uh, to Pharaoh's daughter and says, would you like me to find a, a Hebrew woman who could nurse him for you until he's old enough? And she goes off and she finds Moses' mom. And so Moses actually gets to, or Moses' mom actually gets to raise her son in her home for a little while, while he's little at least, before he then goes off to live in the palace. Then we read this, verse 11. Years later. Don't miss that years later. It's easy to read this as though things are just kind of moving by. But remember, years have passed. And the Hebrew people still sit in the same kind of slavery that they've been sitting in. It's been a long time since Moses went down the Nile and nothing has changed. After Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people, and looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. So one day Moses goes out And he witnesses the oppression that his people are experiencing. He sees this, what is happening. And he goes and and he looks around and he doesn't know what to do. No one is there to stop this. And so he decides, I'm going to stop this. And he steps in and he actually kills this man. When he sees this injustice done and no one to defend this Hebrew, he goes in and defends him himself. And he kills the Egyptian and he buries him in the sand. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly what is going through Moses' mind here. But actually, much later, we get a hint at this. In Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen is preaching this sermon, and he talks about Moses, and he tells us that actually Moses in this moment has this this belief or this understanding that he is supposed to rescue God's people, and that as he begins to do these things, that the people will recognize that, and they will fall in behind him and, and come after his leadership, and that maybe some sort of revolution will start, but that's not what happens. Instead, they reject him. Look at verse 13. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, What I did is certainly known. And when Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So after years of darkness, 
we get this little glimpse of light, right? Everything has gone wrong for God's people. Enslaved, oppressed, um, being annihilated by the Egyptians. And then there's this one, this one boy with this crazy birth and beginning, and he's growing up in the palace. Like he's got influence. He's got a chance to like do something because he's from Pharaoh's household and he's trying to step in because he sees the wrong that's done. And you get this chance like, oh my gosh, something might actually happen here. They may, they may actually be freed. The rescuer may be here. And like that, it falls apart. The very people that he's trying to save reject him. And, and then Pharaoh gets wind of all this and he begins to go after Moses. And in an instant, Moses goes from, from prince to would-be revolutionary to fugitive, running for his life. Without a home, without a place to lay his head. Everything Every bit of hope, every bit of light just kind of evaporates. And now both the Israelites and Moses are in a very dark place. But he does seem to be the same Moses. Because he finds himself at this well in a land called Midian. And here's what he sees. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. And then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, well, he asked, why have you come back so quickly? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. So once again, we see Moses standing up to rescue those in need, standing up for the oppressed. There's something in his nature, something in his character that wants to do this. The young women that he saves are the daughters of this man named Ruel. Uh, later, he's going to be referred to as Jethro. This is common in the Bible for people to have multiple names from either different languages or different events in their life. Uh, Ruel, you may think, sounds like a very odd name. Who would name their kid Ruel? But again, you actually, everyone here knows one Ruel, at least. Uh, John Ronald Ruel Tolkien. So J-R-R, that second R is actually Ruel, the only person I know other than this guy in the Bible who takes that name. And even this guy decides, I don't like that name, I'm going to go by Jethro from here on out. But you know at least one, not important, just a little bit of trivia for you to kind of catch on there. So uh, verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And she gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom. For he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. So it looks there for a little bit like, okay, things are finally working out for Moses. He's got a place and he's invited in and he, he finds a wife and he settles down and gets married and lives happily ever after. But then you see the name that he gives his son and it doesn't sound like Moses feels like this is happily ever after. He names his kid a stranger there. That's what Gershom means. I am a stranger there. I don't belong here. I am a resident alien, away from my home, away from my family. This is not right, living as a refugee. And then the story just kind of leaves Moses there in Midian and gives us this kind of meanwhile back in Egypt. We read in verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. And they cried out, and their cry for help, because of all the difficult labor, ascended 
to God. So here you see again, after a long time, many, many more years, decades have passed. And there's now a new king, but it's the same exact situation. They are still under the oppressive boot of this mighty Egyptian empire and can do nothing about. And our story pauses here with God's people groaning in their suffering and their would-be rescuer off in exile in some foreign land. And I don't know how much Moses knows about God at this point, but if he knows anything about him, he has to be thinking in this moment, seriously, God? Like I could have, I could have turned a blind eye to these people's suffering. I could have just ignored it and lived my life in luxury and comfort in a palace. I was a prince growing up in the mighty Egyptian empire, but I didn't do that. I I tried to do what was right. I I saw them hurting my people. I saw them hurting your people, God, and I tried to stand up for them. And this is what it gets me. Living homeless and alone in a place that is not my home as your people waste away in Egypt. What about your promises to bless them? What about your promises to take care of them? Where are you now, God? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. Where are you, God? What are you doing? Because I don't see it. I don't see what you're up to. I don't see how this is working out with the things that I'm going through. I don't know if you've ever asked that. If you have, you're not alone. It's a difficult and painful place to be in. What do we do when we find ourselves in that spot? Let me tell you uh, about... One of the most painful, difficult nights of my life took place on a Tuesday uh, of my junior year. I remember Tuesday specifically because Wednesday night church was the next day. And I remember this also, that it was the Tuesday after spring break of my junior year of high school. Uh, We had just gotten back from this uh, missions trip to Mexico with my youth group, just gotten back from that. And I was on cloud nine and had a great time with my group and a great time with my youth minister. And I was excited about the rest of the semester together. And and it was towards the end of the night there on Tuesday, we were kind of wrapping up and getting ready for bed and all those things. And my parents called my brothers and I uh, into the living room to have a little bit of a family meeting. And uh, in that meeting, they let us know that uh, our youth minister, uh, my youth minister from the time that I was, I mean, as far back as I could remember, eight, nine years old, had been in our church, a man that I loved and a man that I looked up to and a man that uh, had a profound influence on me, uh, had recently been found out that he had been in a months-long affair with someone. And that the very next evening, he was going to be announcing his resignation from our church. And I don't remember a whole lot else that my parents said to me in that moment. I really don't remember anything else. Uh, My head was just spinning. And when we were done, I'm sure, I think, probably we prayed together. I don't remember. And and then I just asked my dad, is it okay if I just, it was late, but is it okay if I just go for a drive? My dad said, yeah. So I went out and got in my car. It was actually a car that uh, used to belong to my youth minister. He gave it to me. And, and I jump in that car and I'm just driving around and I remember, uh, I remember just feeling like I wanted to fall apart and uh, just crying and yelling and everything in this car. And, and not only am I at pains that this man that I admire so much and looked up to so much 
um, has failed in such a profound way and that he's going to be gone now. But I begin to think about the fact that most of my closest friends and most of the leaders in our youth group are all uh, a year older than me. And that is that they all graduate in a month and a half and they're gone. And I start thinking about this fact and my class was not very strong. There was not a lot of like strong leaders in it. And I begin to feel in this moment this just heavy weight of not only am I going to be missing this guy, but I, I feel like a lot of things are resting on me as I go into this next year with so many leaders gone and, and I feel like I'm alone. And, and the truth is, if I think back, I was probably a little bit over dramatic. I wasn't all alone in this, but I felt like that. I felt, I remember calling out to God, and I remember these specific words, I can't do this alone. Because that's exactly how I felt I was. Devastated, uh, despairing, and alone. Do you know that feeling? Of course you do. Everyone at some point in their life, has had that feeling. And if you haven't yet, you will at some point. You will be in a moment. For some of you, it will be much more than a moment. For some of you, it has been much more than a moment. It has been a season that you went through or are still going through that has been terrible and painful and dark for you. Maybe, like me, you lost someone that you relied on and looked up to and trusted in heavily. Uh, maybe because of a moral failure on their part, or maybe just because uh, they passed away or, or they moved away. But for whatever reason, they're out of your life and you feel a little bit like you're in a tailspin because of those things. Maybe like Moses, you tried to take a stand and do what was right. And when you went out and stood out there, you found yourself when you looked around standing alone, an island all by yourself. And you lost friendships and relationships because of the good that you tried to do, or maybe, maybe as a child, you went through some things that no child should ever have to go through. Some dark things that no child should ever have to experience, and the wounds of that period of your life still affect you today. You still see and feel the scars, or, or maybe, perhaps, you're walking through one of those difficult seasons right now. A season of debilitating depression or anxiety that you can't seem to get a grip on. And, and you know that this isn't true. You know it's not quite true, but it feels like no one gets it. Like no one else knows what you feel like. You feel like you're alone. And maybe if you're honest, the place of despair that you find yourself in, maybe, maybe... Not for all, but, but for some of you, maybe you look back and you realize that partially you're to blame. That it's because of your own foolishness or sinfulness or selfishness. All of us find ourselves in different places. Some of us, it's not our fault at all. Some of us, maybe it's a mixed bag, a little bit of both. Some of us, we know the place we've put ourselves is squarely on us. But whatever it is, you feel buried beneath that. Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt isolated? Have you ever found yourself wondering if there's anyone who sees, if anyone who knows the pain that you're going through and you pray, but it feels like there's no one on the other side of those prayers and it feels like there's no end in sight to the level of pain or darkness that you're in the middle of. That is where the Israelites find themselves in these first two chapters of Exodus. They are stuck there 
in Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world, doing back-breaking labor day in, day out with no hope and no future. Our parents were slaves and we are slaves and our children will be slaves and our grandchildren will be slaves. They know they can look over that horizon all they want, but no one's coming over that horizon to save them. There is no army big enough to stop Pharaoh in Egypt. There is no nation bold enough to come challenge Egypt. And so they are there and there is no hope in their future. They are on their own. And in the midst of all this, this little boy is born. And it seems like things are being set up for real change, for an actual rescue, for some sort of salvation for them. But just when it looks like something's about to happen, it falls apart. And this supposedly special rescuer is now consigned to exile while his people suffer. And the truth is, we don't even know the half of it. Because the chapters that take us about 15 minutes to read took about 40, 50, 60 years for them to live out. This is their life. And it's all they've ever known. And they waste away day after day, month after month, year after year. And it would seem to be a devastating couple chapters if it ended there. But fortunately, it doesn't. Some of you may have noticed I cheated this week. I didn't take us all the way through the end of the chapter. There's still two verses left. We ended with verse 23. Verse 23 says this, After a long time the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. But then there's these two verses, and these two verses make all the difference. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, that is their forefathers. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. Four things said about God in that passage. Four verbs. God heard. God remembered. God saw. And God knew. He is not aloof in these chapters. He is not standing off at a distance. He's not apathetic or indifferent. He has not forgotten them or the promises that he's made to them. He knows what they're going through. He sees the hurt and he is at work, whether they can see it or not, to accomplish his purposes, to save his people, even if they don't recognize it at the time. And the writer hinted at this for us, right? He gave us that little, when she saw he was beautiful, that is, when she saw he was good, this hint that something new is about to happen. This new creation is about to take place. And if you pay attention, when we look through these chapters with the right eyes, we see that God is doing things, that that things are not all that they seem to be, that God is working in ways that no one actually expected. Actually, if you look back with fresh eyes, you will see four specific ways in which the plans of Pharaoh are getting turned on their head and they're actually having the opposite effect. Four different things that Pharaoh, the mighty king of the mighty empire, is doing that are actually working against him as he does it. First, we see this, that Pharaoh's oppression multiplied the people. This was from last week. Verse 10 says this, Pharaoh saw that they were multiplying and he said, let us deal shrewdly so that they do not multiply. And then two verses later in verse 12, it says, but the harsher he oppressed them, the more they multiplied. 
And so the exact opposite effect of what Pharaoh is trying to do begins to take place in their life. The second thing we see that works against them is that women become the heroes. Why was Pharaoh's policy to kill all the boys? If you read that last verse of chapter 1, he says this, You can let all the girls live. All my Egyptian people, if you see a Hebrew girl, let her live. She's fine. It's all the boys you kill. Why? Why does he kill all the boys? Because the boys are a threat. Because it's the boys who can grow up to be warriors, who can grow up to fight, who can grow up to attack Egypt. But the women, in Pharaoh's world, in Pharaoh's mind and life, I mean, there's, there's no threat from them. They can, they can have as many women as they want because they're going to do nothing to stop me and my plans. And yet we see when we walk through the first couple books, the first five heroes of this book are all women. The two midwives who refused to follow Pharaoh's order and take the lives of the boy. Moses' mom, who against the orders of Pharaoh, hides him away and then tucks him in a basket hoping he'll make it. Moses' sister, who keeps watch over him as he floats down the river and then finds someone to take care of him. And Pharaoh's own daughter, who takes Moses in and has compassion on him, chooses to adopt him. And that leads us to the third thing that we see in this, and that is that the river of death becomes the river of life. The plan, the execution strategy, was that every baby boy goes into the Nile. You throw them into the Nile, let them be crocodile food. Let them drown in there. That's where all of them go. And Moses' mom, not knowing what to do with him, builds this basket and places that basket into the Nile and then sets him adrift. And it just so happened that that very river brings him all the way to Pharaoh's daughter. At the exact moment that she's going down to the river to bathe, this basket rolls by and she reaches out and grabs it. And the very river where Moses was supposed to die is the very river that brings him to Pharaoh's daughter. Which should have actually been a bad thing because, you know, she should have done what her father wanted and killed the boy. But she doesn't. And that leads us to the fourth thing, which is that the household that is trying to kill Moses becomes his refuge. Imagine this. Pharaoh has no idea that the very one who will be used to undo every one of his plans lives under his roof, eats at his table, sits under Pharaoh's protection. No one can touch Moses because he's a a son of the princess and he is protected by the very household that God is going to use him to undo and take apart. And here we see all through these first couple chapters, it looks like Egypt is winning, but when you step back and look at it, the most powerful empire in the world who is used to doing whatever they want, whenever they want it, they keep trying to accomplish their purposes in stamping out this people and they can't. Why? There's no one stopping them. There's no army. The Israelites themselves are not enough. There's this biblical scholar, an Old Testament scholar by the name of J.A. Motyer, and he adds all of these things up in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he says it runs so counter to what should have actually happened that the only way to account for it is that someone is working behind the scenes. And that someone is the God who sees and who hears. The God who remembers and who knows that God is fighting for his people, even if no one could perceive it at the time. And that is important. No one could perceive it at the time. It did not look to the Israelite people like God was doing anything for them. 
It did not look in their moment and in their situation like God was helping them. It looked like he had abandoned them, but the truth is he was right there with him. And it may not have happened in the timing that they wanted, but he had a plan and he was working that plan out whether they saw it or not. So let's come back to you for a minute. I don't know what dark places you have found yourself in over the course of your life. I don't know what dark places some of you find yourself in tonight. Maybe you have felt even this very week, like if you're honest, you're drowning. Like life keeps heaping more and more on you and you cannot keep your head above water and you're trying to hold it together and you come to things like the table and you put a good face on but on the inside you feel like you're falling apart and nobody knows and nobody cares and nobody is able to do anything for you no that is not true he knows he cares he sees and he hears and he has not forgotten you he is not indifferent to your suffering God is not apathetic to the things that you are going through. He is not aloof or standing back. He is there, and you need to know this. He is there even in your darkest moment, even if you do not see it, even if you do not feel it, even if you cannot figure out what he's doing, he is there. And you may wonder if he's there, if he sees, if he hears my prayers, then why doesn't he just get me out of this mess? Then why didn't he get me out of that mess all those years ago? When I went through all of those things, why why didn't he just take care of that and finish that for me? You You may wonder what the answer to that is. Do you want to know what the answer is? I don't know. I don't know exactly why terrible, painful things happen in our lives. And I don't know why some of us have to go through even worse, terrible, painful things than others. I know that the Israelites had to be asking that. Why? Why doesn't God just end this? I know Moses' mom, when she's taking her baby boy and putting him down in a basket in the water, knowing that there's like no chance, she has to be asking that. But I think it's interesting. When you look at this whole story and you step back, what you find is that God rescues his people. He saves them, not by taking away all the bad things that happen to them but by using them. He doesn't pull them right out of every hard thing that could happen and make sure that it never happens. What he does is he takes the hard things and he turns them on their head and he redeems them. And he allows them to walk through the painful moments. He allows them to go through the very hard times. He saves them by using the bad things. My buddy Michael likes to put it like this. There are a lot of people who want to say everything happens for a reason. And I don't know if that's true. I really don't. Everything happens for a reason. Michael says probably a much more biblical way of putting that is not everything happens for a reason, but that God can redeem everything. That God, whatever happens, whatever the reason or bad reason or no reason that it happens, God has the ability to take any of it, all of it, and redeem every bit of it. Alec read us this verse last week, and it's so important and so powerful from Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his 
purpose. Love that verse, but you need to make sure you recognize what it says. It does not say that God does not allow anything bad to happen to those who love him. It does not say that God will save us or those who love him out of every hard situation immediately so that we don't have to experience it anymore. That is not the promise. The promise is this, that in the middle of your deepest heartache, in the middle of your greatest pain, he sees it. He knows it and he aches right along with you. And he promises that in the middle of your pain, he will not forsake you that He never leaves you. He promises that He will take even that deepest, darkest moment and one day, in ways that you may not see how and I may not be able to grasp or understand, one day He will redeem it and use it for good. And do you know how we know that this is true? Because that's exactly what He did with His Son. Actually, this is kind of a crazy thought. The entire Christian faith is based on God doing this thing. The entirety of our faith is based on this thing that God did where he took this very terrible, incredibly bad, the worst of all circumstances, which is the unjust and torturous death of his own son, Jesus, at the hands of wicked man. And what God did not do was reach in and save his son, Jesus, out of that. And what God did not do is Pull, th- pull some strings so that Jesus never had to experience it. What God did is he allowed his son into it. Actually, he sent his son into it. And then he took the worst of possible circumstances and redeemed it into the greatest of all possible goods, the redemption of the entire world through the death and suffering of his son, Jesus. And because God allowed his son to go through those things, you can know that whatever you go through, he will not abandon you in it. You can know that however deep or dark you may feel feel in a given moment, you know that there is hope on the other side because Jesus himself died to make everything right one day. Died to remove all the sin and the darkness and the curse that brings all of us down and that breaks this whole world. And he doesn't always stop it for us, but he works to make it right. This is the crazy thought. If we were sitting there at the cross On the day of crucifixion, it would have been so easy to ask this question. Where is God in all this? How could he let this happen? How could he let evil win and his own pure and holy son go up on that cross? Where is he in this? And the shocking answer that no one saw coming or expected is he's right there. That he's right there in the middle of it. That he's not running from the pain. That he's not hiding from it that he's taking the pain on us, the very Son of God taking our pain on him so that he could one day make all things right. And we believe this, that one day all suffering, all wrong, all injustice will be turned on its head as Jesus makes everything sad become untrue. As Jesus makes everything painful become unraveled in the light of beauty and glory that he has. The question for you is not can you see it, because sometimes you can't. The question is, can you trust it? The question is, can you trust him? That even in your darkest moments, even when you cannot see him, he sees you. Even when you feel like you cannot hear him, he hears you and he is with you, working to bring ultimate beauty out of every bit of pain. And you can know this, that he will never waste a moment 
of your pain. He will never waste a moment of your hardness. Do you have the ability when life gets hard to go home and get on your knees and say to God, I don't understand this. I don't get this. I don't see this, but I trust you. I know this one thing about you, that you are the God who sees. You are the God who hears. You are the God who remembers and you are the God who knows. And so I trust and submit myself to you.